So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the ninth chapter, the verses will be 46 through 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and what it means to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Dear Lord, we know that as we read this word, we depend heavily upon your spirit to illuminate us, to bring this word and apply it to our heart, to open up the meaning so that they're not just words on a page. And in particular this morning, Lord, as we talk about a subject that most of us understand, most of us recognize the importance of humility and that this is a great kingdom character trait. Help us not just to read over this, Lord. Help us to pull out the mirror of Scripture and to look at ourselves very closely and to ask ourselves as we begin to talk about these soils, which soil is prevalent in our life, which soil is prevalent in our church. And we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, during the years of 1946 to 1958, the... A United States government conduct, conducted no less than 23 nuclear tests in a tiny string of islands known as the Bikini Atoll in the South Pacific, the Marsh Islands. Now, just as an aside, the name Bikini doesn't mean they walk around in scant bathing suits. It, it actually was a German uh, pronunciation of the indigenous word for those particular islands. But as you can imagine, they absolutely devastated, decimated the islands. In fact, those 23 tests, they were done in the water, above the water, on the ground, above the ground. Um, the fallout was much greater than the scientists of those days expected, uh, reaching islands hundreds of miles away and having a devastating effect on fishermen who just happened to find themselves in the waters near to that at the time. Um, but but what occurred was that the, the island was pretty much just wiped clean of all life. But about a decade later, the life began to return. And plants began to grow again. And, and so many of the plants that the people had once cultivated for food on that island began to reappear. Plants like coconuts and bananas and papayas and um, pandanas, arrowroot, taro, and breadfruit. They began to grow again. So in 1970, they allowed some of the indigenous people to return to their ancestral homeland. But what happened was after a year or so, the unmistakable um, symptoms of radiation poisoning began to show up in these people, cancers, miscarriages, all kinds of things, until they actually had to reevacuate the islands, and it remains deserted until this very day. But here's the point that I want to make. 
is that what happened, it was sort of a phenomenon. The, the plants, the trees, they grew back. Uh, coconut palms look like coconut palms, and they're covered with all kinds of fruit. But the problem was, is because the soil was poisoned, the fruit was poisoned. Now, I want you to get this, because it's very essential to what we're going to look at today. The trees looked the same. They were that You couldn't discern the difference between a coconut tree in these islands and a coconut tree in another island elsewhere. The difference was that because the soil was poisoned, the fruit was poisoned. The fruit reflected the nature of the soil. Now, if you've been here for our study of Luke, you know that we keep going back to that parable of the sower and the four soils. And I want to do it briefly this morning, but only conceptually. We're not going to look at the parable the way Jesus taught it. I'm just going to kind of use it as a background because I want to talk about an analogy of sanctification rather than an analogy of salvation. We have looked at that parable in many different ways as the spreading of the gospel, the kinds of souls that will accept it, the sovereignty of God in election, the battle plan of the kingdom, and even spiritual warfare. Well, this morning, I want to talk about something that is happening within the church. And, and so let me kind of redesign that. First of all, once again, the sower is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. But the field, rather than being the world, the field is the church. This, this is a discussion of sanctification rather than salvation. This is the church. And there are exactly two different kinds of soils. The seed that is being planted by the sower, instead of being the seeds of the gospel, these are the seeds of Christian virtues, the great Christian virtues of the faith. And there are exactly two kinds of soils in this field. There's the good soil, which we will call kingdom soil, or in the context of our discussion this morning, the soil of humility. And then there's the poisonous soil, the worldly soil, or as we will discuss it, excuse me, the soil of pride. Now, I want you to imagine that the sower goes out to sow. And he sows the virtues of Christianity. Now, of course, you know the virtues. We find them in the Ten Commandments, all through the Old Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, fruits of the Spirit, as Paul gives us in Galatians, the teaching of Jesus in the epistles, all the way through the Bible. We learn about the virtues of a Christian life. Now, I want you to imagine that the seed of that virtue is planted One in the poison soil and the other in the good soil and two trees grow up. To the naked eye, you can't tell the difference between the true two trees. But because the fruit will reflect the nature of the soil, that the fruit of the tree that is planted in the good soil will be good fruit. And the fruit of the tree that is planted in the poisonous soil will be just like that fruit in the bikini atolls. It will be poisonous fruit. Now, once again, I'm not talking about pagans now. Am I talking about outside the church? In fact, I am talking about something, brothers and sisters, if we are honest with each other, every single one of us has this exact same problem. We have good soil, we have kingdom soil, and we have the soil of pride. The old man, the old woman. Well, we're going to talk about the process of sanctification this morning. 
And the process of sanctification is the cultivation of kingdom soil. It's the movement from one soil, the soil of pride, to the soil of humility. Now, these virtues are very important and the outcome is very important. But you can take the exact same virtue within the church and you can plant it in one soil. You're going to get one fruit planted in the other soil, get the other fruit. Now, a church is just a combination of people. That's all it is. We are the church. The people are the church. So if the dominant nature of the soil of the church is prideful, well, that's going to be the nature of the fruit that that church produces by the same token. If it's a humble church, if it's a church that gets the concept of humility and follows Jesus in that, then the the fruit is going to be beneficial fruit for the kingdom. And that is very much what Jesus is going to take us through this process that he has to work on these apostles if they're going to lead the church the way he wants them to. Now, several times I'm going to refer to sort of a maxim or a statement that John MacArthur made in, in, in his commentary on this. And I like it, so I'm going to use it uh, on several occasions. He says that sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat that. That the process of sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that is exactly the process that Jesus is starting now with his disciples and has to kind of speed up a little bit because he's turning his face towards Jerusalem. So with that said, let's turn to our study. Now... If you've been here for the study of Luke, you know that there's a subtle shift going on in the way Luke has been approaching this. We've been talking about the divinity of Christ, the fact that God has entered space and time, that the word became flesh and has walked amongst us. He is the supernatural miracle working son of God. But there's been a subtle shift just recently, twice now in the last week almost, He has told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed at the hands of mortal men. We're trying to get our head around that. How can God in the flesh be killed by mortal men? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, we're seeing the the greatest example of humility the world has ever seen. When God in himself humiliates himself by taking on the attributes of a human and then subjects himself to that. That's our model. That's the kingdom soil, the soil of humility. Well, the disciples aren't there yet. In fact, the disciples are struggling. I mean, by disciples, I mean specifically the apostles at this time. Um, because one, for one thing, they're, they're confused. And we have seen that in these last several uh, examples. We're going to continue to see it today and, and next week as well. We're going to see a confusion. They're confused about the nature of who Jesus is. They're confused about the nature of his mission and purpose. They're confused about the kingdom that he has come to establish. And they're confused about their part in that kingdom. Which we're going to see, obviously, today when they start arguing about who's great. They're greatest in that kingdom. So they're confused. And there's a couple of reasons for that confusion. One, they're stuck in the world. Their mindset is the mindset of the world. As we um, uh, have mentioned several times from Matthew back in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus, after strongly rebuking Matthew, says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And so their minds are stuck in the presupposition of who they expect the Messiah to be and the kind of kingdom that they expect to come. It's an earthly kingdom, and, and they're going to be at the pinnacle of that kingdom. So that's where their heads are. It's still stuck in the world. In fact, firmly rooted in the soil of pride to keep it in the context we're going to talk about this morning. But there's another reason that they're confused. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit, God himself, has concealed many of the truths that Jesus is sharing. Especially the truths of his suffering. Because that's out of compassion. They're just not ready to deal with that level of suffering. But also, the gospel's not complete yet. And really, it won't be until after the resurrection and really after Pentecost that they begin to truly understand what is going on. And so, therefore, there's this state of confusion. But I don't want to pass beyond this point of trying to get our context right without pointing out the stark comparison that we're right in the middle of. In other words, what we have seen is Jesus transformed, transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, then coming down the mountain and casting out a particularly tenacious demon. We have seen Jesus as God in the flesh, but as the most humble of human beings that really ever walked this earth. And over here, we see this ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in that kingdom. So we have this great distinction of the soil of humility in Jesus and the soil of pride in the disciples. And we're going to see that the process of sanctification is to move them from that soil of pride over to the soil that is the soil of Jesus. Now, with that said, let's jump into our text. Usually, Dr. Luke likes to set the scene for us when he switches scenes. He usually kind of puts things in his perspective. He doesn't do that here. He jumps right into this. uh, And I think the reason that he does that is he kind of wants to keep our focus on that distinction that I just made. He, He wants us to see the comparison between what the disciples are doing and what Jesus is doing. And so he doesn't give us any background about what's going on. So let me step out of Luke for just a moment. Let's go to the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, particularly Mark, and let's get a little bit of details about what has actually been happening here so we can keep it in its proper perspective. Let's go all the way back to the Caesarea Philippi, where we had that magnificent declaration of who Christ is. He's he's the Christ of God. Now, after that, they head back to Capernaum. Jesus and his disciples, along the way, they stop probably at Mount Miron. And and that's where he goes up to pray. And that's where the transfiguration occurs and the exorcism of the demon-possessed boy at the base of it. Now, after they leave that mountain, they're on their way back down to uh, to Capernaum, to, to, to their home base. And along the way, apparently, there's a disputation. There is an argument. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus discerns the thoughts of the disciples. Mark puts it this way. As they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, notice the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? 
But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here's kind of the way we harmonize the gospel because Matthew has a slightly different take on it. They, they, they get to the house and we'll talk about whose house it could have been in just a moment. But they get to the house and Jesus at first discerns their thoughts. It, it, this is not surprising to him. He already knows what's going on. Luke tells us that. And then he asks the disciples, okay, so what were you guys uh, arguing about uh, on the way? I, I didn't quite catch that. And they don't want to tell him because they're ashamed because they're arguing about who's the greatest. But then Matthew tells us that after a while of silence, they blurt out the question, okay, Jesus, tell us who's the greatest. Now, now Matthew tells us a little story as they come into Capernaum about the, the temple tax and how they attained that by taking the coins out of the fish. Both Mark and Luke sort of leave that out. But that brings us to where we are, to the house. Now, we don't know whose house it is, but they used to hang out at Peter's house quite a bit. So, you know, it's a conjecture, but, you know, they, they may be there in Peter's house, and Jesus is, is addressing this. So with that said, and that's sort of as our background, let's turn to Luke and then we'll see what Luke has to say. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I like the way Spurgeon reacts to this. Spurgeon would do exposition, sort of a commentary sometimes on these passages. Actually, I think he did it pretty much every week. But the way he responds to this is sad, 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 a hundred times sad. And what he's doing is he's responding to the fact that Jesus has just revealed that he's going to the cross to die on the cross. Of course, he hadn't said the cross. He just said, I'm going to be killed. And here the disciples are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom that doesn't even bear any semblance to the kingdom Jesus is talking about. So they're obviously confused. It's a very sad statement here of where the disciples are. But, um, and we've already discussed why they were in that particular place, why they were there. Well, the word that is used here of greatness is a word that we use quite a bit. We just don't know it. It's the Greek word and also a prefix, megas. And, and there's a little bit of a play on words that you wouldn't really pick until, unless you were looking at this in Greek. Back when we talked last week about the majesty of Christ, the greatness of Christ, well, the prefix in that word in the Greek is megas. Well, here it's the same word, mega. And we talk about, we use that word, we shorten it to mega just to, uh, and we use it as a prefix usually. It's one thing to have a movie that's a hit. It's another thing to have a movie that is a mega hit. We have a lot of little churches like this one, um, but then there are some mega churches that are huge, that have a whole bunch of people in them. So it's sort of a prefix that talks about the one who is literally the greatest. Well, that's what they're arguing about. That's their disputation. Who is actually going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, that brings up sort of a collision of sorts. You, you, you see... Because if you take the idea of, let's go back to the, the, the opening discussion of two different kinds of soils. If you take the idea of greatness, and that, that's what's being discussed. If you take the idea of greatness and you plant it in the soil that is poisoned with pride, 
then greatness is going to reflect the world's concept of what greatness is. And it includes things like wealth and position and influence and fame and all of those things, the resources that you have, the abilities that you have, and all of that is considered greatness. Well, if you plant the exact same concept in the soil of humility, the exact opposite is true. And in fact, they're counter to each other because if you're great in the world's vision, you're nothing in, I'm I'm sorry, let's go back and do it. If you're great in the kingdom's sense, you're nothing in the world. But if you're great in the world, then you're nothing in the kingdom. And so therefore, they're exactly opposed to each other. There is a complete and total opposite. And in fact, brothers and sisters, This is where the kingdom runs into trouble with the world because the world can't conceive of this. And there's so much of the world left in us. There's so much of the world left in the church that we can't conceive it even in the Christian context. Are you going to tell me that this unassuming man with absolutely nothing, no money, no two farthings to rub together, who doesn't even have a place to lay his head, who comes and supposedly is going to set the people free, and they all reject him and laugh at him. And the religious leaders have nothing to do with him. And in fact, they turn him over to the Romans, who beat him and scourge him and mock him and spit on him and strip him almost naked and make him carry through town a cross and nail him to that cross where he is torturous, dies a torturous and demeaning death. You're saying that's greatness? Yeah, actually it is. When it's planted in the good soil, when it's planted in the soil of humidity, there was never an act of love or humility greater than the one that Jesus did. But it's exactly the opposite in the understanding of the kingdom. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, we get the essence of sanctification. And, and the point that I'm going to try to make today is there's all kinds of virtues that we need as Christians. And I'm not telling you to not work on those virtues. But if you don't first do something about the soil that those virtues are planted in, you're going to end up with poisoned fruit, no matter how good the virtue is. And even though the trees look exactly the same. And so therefore, the process of sanctification is the movement from a soil of pride to a soil of humility. I can't tell you how important this is, folks. Don't read over this. Don't say, I know all about humility. I I got it. I've read all the passages, you know, and then turn right around and practice the soil of pride. Because this is greatness in the kingdom. This is what Jesus is explaining to us. And so... With that as, oh, by the way, there's one other thing that I want to point out as far as these disciples are concerned. We're not going to get into this so much. We will a little bit later on today. But just notice, notice the difference, okay? Jesus is going to talk about when the, when the, when the virtue, the seed of greatness is planted in the soil of humility. Well, there's going to be a unity with all those who come in his name according to his purpose, who are submitted and surrendered to him. But look at the disciples. Look at the fruit of their greatness planted in the soil of pride. It's division. It's disunity. It's divisiveness. It's contention and disputation. 
Because I want you to know that I'm the greatest. And so therefore we see already the poison fruit, even though it's planted in the disciples themselves. This is something that the church really needs to understand as we continue to talk about our own sanctification. Well, Jesus is going to give us an example of his point. Look in the 47th verse. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his sides. Now, we've already talked about Jesus discerning the thoughts of the people. And, and, and frankly, we don't know whether this is an example of his omniscience. You may remember in John 2, um, it, it, it says that no one had to tell Jesus to, or no one needed to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus understood what was in the heart. But there's also passages that tell us that he wasn't always in, in, in the know in his humanity especially as far as the time of the second coming coming uh, and, and things like that. So therefore, was this something that had to do with Jesus' omniscience that he knew that? Or is he discerning where these disciples are? Well, l- l- let me kind of expand that second one a little bit because I, d- I don't doubt it was, uh, it was his omniscience, but we just don't know. But I do know that Jesus has a task. He has a really important task not only is he about to turn his face towards Jerusalem and the, and the cross looms large there. Not only is he headed towards that, that great event was one of the reasons that he came. But he also has a task because these apostles aren't ready. They're firmly planted in the soil of pride. And if in just a couple of months after the resurrection, after the ascension, after his coronation, when when they're the ones who are going to form the foundation of the church, they need to make some progress. They need to move from the soil of pride to the soil of humility. And so therefore, I think Jesus is paying very close attention to what's going on. Every blunder, every misstep, everything that they do, he's going to be aware of. And I think that's also the reason that we're going to launch into multiple kingdom parables here. Where Jesus explains very clearly what the kingdom of heaven is like. But nonetheless, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. Now, people love to, you know, to, uh, to ponder about things. Well, it's the house, so that means it's a known house. So perhaps this is Peter's house. That means perhaps this is Peter's son. Yeah, we don't know, but the people like to wonder about those kinds of things. But anyway, Jesus brings a child and puts it in their midst. He's going to use them as an example. Now, we want to see what the child represents. The child is a fallen child just like the rest of us. And he's just as prideful as the other guys. So it's not this particular child has some kind of inherent innocence or something. Jesus is using the child as an example and a very poignant example it is. Several things that a child would would represent. One is humility because in the household, the child had no say. A child was at the bottom of the social and political ladder of the household. Now, this is not to say that the Hebrews didn't love their children. It's not to say that they weren't good parents. They were, and they considered children to be a great blessing. 
But as far as having their own say, having a voice, arguing with their parents, determining their own way, or as some kids do today, sue their parents if they don't like what they say. That was unheard of in those days. That child was at the bottom of the barrel as far as the social and political voice that they had in the house. In fact, some of the rabbis of the time would write as far as the men were concerned, don't waste your time with children because they can't understand the Torah. Wait until they can understand the Torah, and then you can spend your time with them. Otherwise, it's time wasted. So for the first thing, the child represents the very humility that is essential if these disciples are going to be able to be the men Jesus wants them to be. But also, a child represents total dependence and trust. A child, especially in those days, a child has no recourse. It has no voice, no place they can go, no government agencies that can move in and take that child over. The child is totally and completely dependent upon their parents. And they trust those parents completely to have the knowledge and, 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 and the good intent to lead them properly. So there's a great trust. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the hallmarks of what it means to be a, a born-again Christian. It is to follow. It is to be a disciple. It is to be dependent on Jesus. It is to trust him. And that is a very important characteristic of what he is saying as far as the child is concerned. But then thirdly, there's another aspect, especially in the light of what's going to happen both today and, tomorrow, and next week. And, and, and that's that this child represents the marginalized to a degree. The poor, the downtrodden, the, the ones that nobody really cares about. The, the ones that, you know, might have a golden heart and be right on line with Jesus. Maybe totally submitted to him and totally dependent on him and in love with God. And yet they're wearing shabby clothes and they just don't look the part. So therefore the child represents the marginalized, the downtrodden, the ones that Jesus came to save. But that the world, if that, is, if that same idea of greatness is planted in the soil of pride, is not going to see it that way. So Jesus puts this child in their midst and says, okay, here's my example. And he goes on and he says this. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I want to back away just a moment and compare this to almost exactly the same words that Matthew says. And the only reason I want to do this is to help clarify what Luke is saying. You see, Jesus is setting out to, in a way, purify the soil. It's poison. You know, it's the poison of pride. It needs to be purified. And we talk about purification in other senses of heating up a metal to the point where the dross or the the impurities, they float to the surface and can be scooped off and you end up with a purified metal. And it's the same process here, except it's the cultivation of soil, the analogy we're using now. Jesus needs to purify the soil of the apostles, get them from the place of the pride that they're in, the worldliness that they're in, and get them to a place where they are truly humble and dependent and trusting just like this child. Now, Matthew uses words almost exactly like this in his gospel, in the 10th chapter of his gospel, that great discipleship chapter. And this is the way that he puts it. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, actually, the words are almost the same, but 
quite different in the way that they're being used. Matthew is speaking to his apostles saying, I'm sending you out with the very word that the Father gave me. It's the golden thread of revelation. The Father shares it with Christ. Christ shares it with the apostles. The apostles go out and share it with the world. That's the battle plan of the kingdom. That's the reason we're here is because that has continued on through the ages. But he's talking about the apostles being received by the people. Well, Luke has completely turned that around. He's not talking about the apostles being received by the people. He's talking about the people being received by the apostles. And that's the way he put it. He said, whoever receives one of these little ones, whoever receives one of these in my name. Now, let's remember what the child represents. He represents humility. He represents dependence. He represents trust. He represents the marginalized. He represents those who are submitted and surrendered to Christ, who have a heart of humility, a heart with the right kind of soil. And so what Jesus says is, whoever um, receives them, that means to embrace them, to minister to them, to accept them into the family of their fellowship, to bring them in. Whoever receives them in my name, it's just exactly as if you received me. And if you receive me, you receive my father who sent me. And you know what results from that? When people who have the soil of humility in their hearts receive one of these children, one of these outcasts, one of these marginalized people who also have the soil of humility in their hearts, you have perfect unity within the church. In fact, for that person coming into that church, it's almost like I just came home. and This is my family. I feel perfectly at ease here. Where if that church or those apostles have the soil of pride, the poisoned soil of pride. When one of the little ones, one, one of the ones who submitted to Christ, who is, who is surrendered to him, who has the humble heart, there's instant conflict. By the same token, if there is a body of Christ with humble hearts and the proud heart comes in, well, there's also conflict. So Jesus is explaining to us the very, very fundamental foundation. And I don't know how much uh, um, important you can get here as far as what the basis that he wants in his church. Now, th- this is not something that is new to Jesus. This is not something that is not shared with us throughout Scripture. In fact, let me just give you a few examples. Because humility in the face of God and with each other is exalted while pride is, 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 is demeaned all throughout Scripture. Brother Frank read to you from the 51st Psalm earlier. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Isaiah puts it this way in his 57th chapter. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places. And also, this is amazing. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Not, not the movers and shakers, not the arrogant and proud, not the ones with all the money and the position and the influence, but the contrite and lowly. That's where I make my home. And he says the same thing later in Isaiah. This is the one to whom I will look. He who.
evil and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. And that continues as a theme throughout all of Scripture. God loves humility. It is of greatest importance to Him. And He hates pride. Proverb puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate, says the Lord. Amos puts it this way. The Lord God is sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his stronghold. Brothers and sisters, Scripture could not be clearer about this. One of the most important of the kingdom characteristics, character traits, is humility. And yet it is absolutely foreign to our culture. And the more that the culture infiltrates the church, the more poisoned soil we have. The more good soil, the more the church is going to be reflective of the very heart of Christ and the very kind of people that Jesus actually wants in his church. Brothers and sisters, this is a discussion of the unity of the church. And the unity of the church are those with humble and broken hearts and spirits who are dependent and trusting on Jesus and Jesus alone for everything. Those are the ones through whom he is able to work well. Kingdom that we are part of, brothers and sisters, is an upside down kingdom. Because everything is different than people think it is. Jesus puts this as he comes to the last phrase. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Again, this this just doesn't make any sense to the world. But brothers and sisters, please. I I said this at the outset. And I believe that everyone here knows this. I, I don't think there's anyone in our midst that doesn't realize the importance of humility to the Christian. Because all we have to do is look at Jesus and see the humility that he showed us. And so therefore, like so many things that are familiar with us, we just read right over it. And we don't recognize that this is not a side issue. This is not a doctrine that is is sort of on the edges of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, this is the core. This is the heart of what it means to be sanctified. It is moving from the pride of life that you have when you are converted to a humility that represents and reflects Jesus himself. That is hard, folks. It's hard to look at the downtrodden. It's hard to look at the suffering. It's hard to look at the weak. And to say, that's my model. I want to be weak and suffer and persecuted just like you. So I can be like Jesus. Well, Paul puts it this way. I think he helps us when we see this. Again, this is radical stuff. Paul puts it this way. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, what? I'm strong. And what he's saying is that when I'm weak in myself, when I'm humbled, when I'm beat down, when I'm suffering, when I don't have anything left, I turn to Jesus and I'm dependent upon Him and I trust Him and I have the strength of God. Runs through my veins. It's upside down, folks. That's, that's not the way of the world. But Jesus is saying, if you really, really want to be my disciples, if you want to be my apostles, then you need to understand some things that are pretty radical. You know, things like love your enemies. Be good to those who hate you. 
Pray for those who persecute you. Well, here he says, those who are least among you are the greatest. Now, I think that what we see here in this um, is not just for us individually, but it is also for churches. Because I keep trying to make this association that if you have a church that that it, the, the majority of the people in the church understand the importance of the humility of their hearts, you're going to have one kind of church. But if you have another church that is very prideful in who they are and their capabilities, well, then you've got another kind of church. And it just so happens that Jesus reveals some examples of that for us. The beautiful seven churches of Revelation. There is only two churches that Jesus has nothing good to say about. And there's two churches that he has nothing bad to say about. And the church that he has nothing bad to say about is a humble church. And the one that has nothing good to say about is a prideful church. Here's what Jesus says about the church of Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So therefore, I am going to make you the gateway through which I spread the gospel in the east. That little church, probably the reason they didn't have a lot of people is because they've all been killed by that time. Standing up for the name of Jesus. And yet, because of their weakness, they had strength. He had something quite different to say to the church at Laodicea. As he put it this way, for you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the church where the majority of people in that church have got proud hearts instead of the hearts of humility. So what's the process? Well, one of the process here is so that we would understand the devastating impact that pride has on us individually and the devastating impact that pride has on us as a church. And I hope you get the analogy by now. It's a simple one, but I think it's profound in what it means Within the church, I'm not talking about the culture around us. I'm talking about within the church and to a degree within each one of us. There's the good soil and there's the poison soil. There's the humble soil and then there's a proud soil. And as John MacArthur says, let me quote him once again, the process of sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride and the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the objective of sanctification, as important as all the virtues are, the objective of sanctification is to cultivate kingdom soil, to turn your heart into something that is humble because you plant virtue in a humble heart. You bear the fruit of the kingdom. Some great pictures in Scripture to illustrate this. I just want to bring three of them out to you very quickly. First of all, the example that Jesus just gave us. And, and, to, and as I said, when, when he tells his disciples, if you receive one of these little ones, humble and needy and dependent and trusting and, and, and submitted and surrender to me with a heart of humility, when you receive that person into your fellowship, into your heart, if that's the condition of your heart as well, then there is perfect unity. 
And you have a powerful group of people. I don't care how many people are in the church. You have a power because the power is the unity that is in Christ's name and not the unity that is in ourselves. And yet, if you bring that same person into a church that is proud in its heart. Well, James gives us a good example of that in his second chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down here at my feet, Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in other words, that's that 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 is the 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 result of a church with proud hearts. Uh, Two men come in and, and it's totally external. The distinctions you bring are all based on what you perceive to be power and importance. This man is rich. This man has resources. This man is obviously intelligent. So let's bring him in and elevate him to a position of leadership. Where the one that actually has the heart of Christ might be the man with shabby clothing that you kind of spurn away. That's why there's discernment that is necessary, brothers and sisters, because the plants look the same. It's the fruit that represents the condition of the soil. I think this is probably one of the most poignant places that it shows up is in the leadership of the church, uh, Christian service as a whole, if you will, but certainly in the leadership. That if you take a calling to Christian ministry and you plant it in prideful soil, you're going to get poisoned fruit from a poisoned ministry. You do the same thing in humble soil. You're going to get good fruit. Great example of this. We're studying on a Wednesday night in our study of Acts. It's Moses, and, and you know that Moses is one of the greatest saints of the Old Testament. He's one of the two men who were just with Jesus up on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And, and, and Moses, you know, of course you know that he was adopted into the family of Pharaoh. He was raised in the very palace of Pharaoh himself. If there was ever a man with the power and influence and connections to lead the people out of Egypt, it was Moses. But you remember what he did, don't you? Now, Stephen, when he tells the story in Acts, he kind of in, in, intimates that, that Moses knew his calling. That he knew that God had called him to be a deliverer. So what he does is, in the power of his own pridefulness, he goes out to set the people free. And he starts out one, one Egyptian at a time. He kills an Egyptian. And he figured out he would go back the next day and the people would flock around him, see that he's their deliverer, that he's their savior and follow him. Instead, they outright rejected him. And to his horror, he found out that his murder of the Egyptian was public knowledge and he was an outlaw. <laughs> Great job, Moses, right? That's the fruit of pride when it's planted in that particular soil. So God knew that Moses needed a little bit of time to make the transition from pride to humility. So what did God do? He sent him to the desert for 40 years to be a shepherd so that he would learn a little bit of humility. And after 40 years, when he's 80 years old, after he's been in the desert watching sheep, then God says, now you're ready. 
Now I can use you. Because you have a heart that is humble. So now we'll take that leadership. We'll take that calling. We'll take that ministry. And we'll plant it in the good soil. And you know the rest of the story. One of the greatest examples of a, of, of a godly man. And the greatest example of God power in all of the Old Testament. Makes a difference what kind of soil you're planted in. And, and they're same virtue. It's same Moses. But it's the... Soil of pride as opposed to the soil of humility. One more example. We're all called brothers and sisters to be stewards of God's resources. And we're all called to look around us and to recognize the state of those around us. And, and, and the idea of benevolence is an idea that is very dear to the heart of God. He, he, he knows that there are poor and the poor will always be there. But he expects his people in his church to, 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 to spread out those resources so that the, 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 the needy are ministered to. Now, in the book of Acts, in the early parts of the church, we had the most extraordinary example of hearts of humility. 3,000 people came to know Christ on Pentecost. Then the next one was 5,000 people. And then they lost count. The church is growing exponentially. And the most extraordinary thing was happening. People were looking around them. And seeing that there were those in the church. Who had less than they needed. In order to make ends meet. And so they went out on their own. Without being uh, uh, conduced to do it. And began to sell the things that they had. This is what we read in Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them. They, for all intents and purposes, wiped out poverty within their midst. For as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. They were not coerced. The apostles did not send them out and said, sell everything that you own. This is not communism. It is not socialism. This is the outpouring of a heart that is humble, that recognizes they have just been saved from hell's fire. And that the material things that they have are nothing compared to the benevolence and the benefits of the kingdom of God. So willfully and cheerfully they go out and they sell everything that they have because their hearts are so dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens when benevolence is planted in the good soil. But then we're given an example of what happens to the exact same virtue when it is planted into the soil of pride. There's a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Do you know this story? Okay? They're, they're watching as all the people are bringing their proceeds and laying them at the disciples' fe- at feet. And everybody is in awe. And there is such an, an unbelievable spirit that the Holy Spirit is moving people to do this. And they're doing it willfully and cheerfully. And Ananias and Sapphira said, I want a little bit of that too. So they go out and they sell a piece of property. But you see, they're after the pride. They're after the accolades. They're after the pretension. And so they hold something back. And and that would be okay as long as they told everybody, I'm holding something back. I'm keeping something for my needs. But they made the pretension before the Lord that they were doing it out of the love and the fullness of their heart. And that, of course, you know, Peter called them on it. Said Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of Of the proceeds of the land. So in other words. 
what we see in that is the exact same virtue. Planted in the good soil brings out fruit for the kingdom. Poverty is eliminated. Planted in the soil of pride, harsh judgment for Ananias and Sapphira on that day. And a good lesson that the Holy Spirit cannot be mocked. God won't be mocked. You're not going to pull anything over his eyes. That is the condition of the heart that makes the great difference. So brothers and sisters, let me just kind of wrap this up. If you're a Christian, you truly love Jesus, if you've been regenerated and born again, then all of us, we all have a common desire and we all have a common problem. The common desire is that in our heart of hearts, we want to please God. I mean, that's alien to us before we're Christians. When our heart is changed, there is a desire to please him, a desire to follow his lead, to live according to his commandments, to, to do what he tells us to do, not, not out of obligation, but out of love. It, it, it is this desire to please our Lord and Savior in all that we do. And so, therefore, we know because we read Scripture that one of the great character traits that our Lord exhibited was humility. So all of us want To be humble in part of us. But we all have the same problem, you see. We all have the the old self, the old man, the old woman. All of us have part of us, the, the flesh that is still locked into the pride of life, that still wants position, that still wants things for themselves. And the pride of my flesh fights against my new creation in Christ constantly trying to win me back to the, 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 the soil that is, that, that is planted in pride. And so therefore there's a process called sanctification. And the only thing you take away from this message is that the process of sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that you take away. Then John MacArthur and I have done our job. But I want you to see this. That's the essence of sanctification. If you're a Christian, you've been born again, you are on the road to sanctification. You are in a process whereby... You are moving from the soil of pride to the soil of humility. The degree to which you progress before you leave this world and are glorified is the degree to which you will be sanctified. Now, what can you do? What can I do to hurry up that that sanctification? What can we do to augment it? What can we do as, as part of this to move from pride to humility? Well, part of it we have no control over. Because part of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why John MacArthur says very clearly that it's the triumph of, of humility over, over pride in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who moves us along. But there is something we can do. We have nothing to do with our own salvation, but we do have something to do with our own sanctification. We can just sit, find a nice parking place waiting for Jesus to come back. Or else we can turn to the means of grace that he has given us. I know you're looking for a silver bullet, but there's nothing new. It's the means of grace. It is to turn to the word. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you cannot read the word of God and come away and think, well, I guess you could, but you should. And if you're paying attention to it, you can't come away with the idea that arrogance is something that God loves. 
And pride is the way that you want to stay. You need to move from pride to humility. And so therefore, the more you read the word, the more time you spend listening to the word exposited, the more time you spend meditating on the word and studying the word. And I'm talking about you, brothers and sisters, because you should be at your church, wherever your church is, every time the doors are opened, unless you are providentially hindered. You should be at every Bible study. And if you cannot make a Bible study, there are plenty of good Bible studies out there that you could be part of. A Casual reading of the word of God is not enough. You need to be immersed in his word. And that's where you learn the lessons of scripture. And you learn how important humility is to God. But there's something else that you can do. Besides the means of grace. Besides taking of communion. I think one of the best ways. That you can begin to augment your own sanctification. Is through your prayer life. Through the time that you spend with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in prayer. That conversation. And to actually ask Him. I can't do all of this on my own. I I ask you to humble me. I ask you to make me humble. Brothers and sisters, be careful what you pray for. Because He just might. And quite often the way God humbles you is through suffering, through persecution, through hardships, through calamities, through all the kinds of things that we think if we avoid, we're doing good. But if we ask the Lord for true humility, chances are he's going to lead you through the fire. But you see, that's greatness. Do you understand that? Do you understand the difference between greatness in the world and greatness in the kingdom? Greatness in the kingdom does not come through power and riches. It comes by cultivating soil of humility. By cultivating kingdom soil. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I know that this is something that seems totally adverse to the way the world teaches it. And and I recognize that. Why would we expect the kingdom of heaven to be like this fallen world? That blows me away. Of course it's got to be different. Of course up it's got to be down. Weak's got to be strong. First have got to be last. Because it's your kingdom of perfect holiness. And you give us a glimpse of it. Especially... In the person of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray for this church. Because it's not just individuals, but it is church. I pray that you would grant this church. And I know what I'm saying when I say this. I pray that you would grant this church the heart of humility. And if that means persecution, that means suffering, that means hard times, if that means calamities... If that means all the whole list of things that we try to avoid and the world says that if any of those things happen to you, then you're not doing it right. Knowing full well that that's what you might bring to us, I pray that you would humble us so that in our weakness, your strength would be revealed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.